This is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. The bodies of elite athletes are finely tuned machines. In training and competition, they are pushed to extremes, meaning pain and injury are a common byproduct. Your whole body is on fire and we want as much of that as we possibly can because it's a byproduct of speed. We watch our sporting heroes in their moments of glory or failure. But the preparation and training required to compete at the highest level has taken those athletes years of dedication and hard work. And it's not just about performing at your best, it's also about sustaining your career. You hand your resume in every time you go out on the field to try and get your job back the next week. Whether you're feeling good or bad doesn't really jump into that equation. Today, we're speaking to two very different athletes. National icon Kate Campbell is the Ferrari of F1 racing. Her body has powered her to four Olympic gold medals and eight Olympic medals in total. NRL star Wade Graham has played over 250 games at the highest level. His body is a bulldozer, built to push through players and sustain impacts most of us would take weeks to recover from. Most Australians will remember your last race at the Tokyo Olympics, <laughs> uh, which was the relay. Do you want to just set that scene of the relay and talk us through what you were thinking and feeling when you turned at that halfway point? Yeah, this, this has to go down as like one of my, my favourite races, uh, partly because we mowed down the Americans and we just love doing that. We were kind of expecting on paper, America was well clear of us. They should have won. The most technical part of a relay is a relay changeover. If you can get that as quick as possible, that's where you can really, really gain on your opposition, especially if their skills aren't as good as yours. And if you do it really well and if you do it fast, you never actually see the person in the water touch the wall because you're already in the air and you just have like a toe or a foot on the block when their hand has hit the wall. And so we're standing there and Emma's swimming in and I, I look at her and I know her stroke and I'm just like, all right, let's do this. And I take a big breath and I back myself and I go. And as I hit the water, I think I've either nailed that or we are disqualified. I was calm and cool and collected and just executed my perfect race plan. I touched the wall and saw that we had won by 0.12 of a second. The Americans change over time was 0.38 of a second. My changeover was 0.04. There was four one hundredths of time between Emma touching the wall and the time that there was my feet on the block at the same time. So there were so many parts of that that I really, I felt like I had to sit into my body. I had to trust that I had honed this skill to within a fraction of a second because four one hundredths is less than the blink of a human eye. 
Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. From Rainieri and Co. and Headline Productions, this is The Long Haul, and I'm Emma Murray. I worked with Kate as a performance coach in the lead-up to the Tokyo Olympics. I saw firsthand the relentless focus and training driven by her desire to be the best. She is innately competitive. As an adoring nation, we've watched her reach the pinnacle of her sport. But performing at this level for over a decade also has a physical toll. In the coming weeks, we'll be releasing a bonus episode. It's one of my favourite interviews in this podcast series, a more in-depth conversation with Kate Campbell. So we sit on our couch and we watch and we're like, oh, two laps of the swimming pool. Like, you know, anyone can do that. What does your body feel like when you are in that second lap of a 100-metre sprint? It really frustrates me when people say, oh, the last 10 metres of the race, it separates um, the, the mentally strong from the mentally weak. And that is just complete rubbish because everyone who's in the pool is so mentally strong and sometimes your body just shuts down so we push ourselves and and so when it when we're in sort of the last 50 or that last 25 our bodies are being flooded with lactic acid and acid it burns your muscles right so your whole body is on fire and it, it, it gets in a, and it actually damages your muscle. And we are pushing ourselves to, to levels where uh, we want as much of that as we possibly can because it's a byproduct of speed. So the faster you go, the more you get. For layman's terms, it's when you get up and you run really fast and you feel that real burning in your lungs, like yeah. keep going and imagine that dialed up to a hundred because we've trained ourselves to be able to open those floodgates and flood our body with the lactic acid. And there's an Olympic gold medal on the line. And there's an Olympic gold medal on the line. <laughs> is it possible to push through that or there is just a physical limit that your body literally stops at? It's, it's a little bit of both. So you, you can physically just hit a wall. Your muscles are just not able to contract and expand at the rate that you need them to, to keep going. Uh, so yeah, it, you can overrule it to a point. And, and, if, and if you reach the wall before that, that, that actual physical shutdown point, then that's a really good day. And if you don't, then it's a really long way. You know, 10 meters can turn into a really long way. Do you remember a race where it was like your body just felt like it let you down? There are lots, but there was <laughs> there, there are lots. Um, one one that really stands out, and that was at the Rio Olympic Games in the women's hundred meter freestyle. And 
our bodies are so sensitive that any small adjustments, any minute adjustments can have a real impact on that second 50. So I uh, have a, a stroke rate that, that I swim out as it's, it's 46 stroke rates and I, and I swim out in, you know, 32 strokes. And if I'm off by one stroke, if I'm one stroke higher, I've burned a little bit too much of that glycogen that those fast twitch fibers, and I've injected more lactic acid into my body than I should have done by the time we reached 50 meters. And I can just remember turning in that race and putting my feet on the wall. And it was like this wash of lactic acid, like rushed up my body. And I just thought it is, I know that it is going to be a really, really long way home. And you were favorite in that race. I was favorite in that race. I was the world record holder. I had broken the Olympic record going in, uh, in, in, in the heats and then in the semifinals. I think I was ranked number one going in. Uh, and in that race, I ended up coming sixth. And that has become a really integral part of my story and, and part of my journey and something that I never want to shy away from talking about because I think that if I'm willing to talk about all the successes, I should be able to talk about the other things as well. Well, yeah, but, you know, you talk about it to the public in terms of like, no, I didn't live up to expectations and I let people down. But what we don't hear is my stroke rate was wrong. By a a really small margin, right? And those are the parameters that I work within. Those are my areas of error. Okay, so let's look at an Olympic year. And you've just explained what's required of your body on race day but what does it take what's your training routine to get to do two laps the fastest you can (laughs) i know the 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 training to competition ratio is so far out of whack for swimming so a usual training week looks like nine swim sessions three gym two spin bike sessions and two pilates sessions so it all up it all up adds to be about like maybe 30 to 35 hours of exercise. And then on top of that, um, like physio and massage are, are really important. And, you know, taking taking really good care of your body. Sometimes it's two physios, um, you know, particularly as you get older like me. So, uh, and length of, of, of training, I, of my swim sessions, I'm not a distance swimmer. So fortunately, I'm not in some of the really high kilometers, but I would still do between four and five Ks per session. Um, Some of the distance guys do, you know, seven, eight K sessions. Um, And and a few of them go through, they do, they call them 100 K weeks. So that's 10 sessions of 10 K a session, which is nuts. Yeah, that's insane. Insane. not just a sport anymore for us it's our livelihoods right so it's, it's, a, it's our job we're a professional athlete and a player and this is what comes with the territory if you want if you want to be successful and you know if you want to have longevity in your career you need to be able to do the right things and look after your body because if you're not good if you can't maintain that level well, there's someone else who will maintain that level and then you know the game is fully finished with you Wade Graham started playing rugby when he was six years old. He played his first competitive senior game at the age of 17. 
Now, at 31, he's the captain of the Cronulla Sharks. NRL is the sport of warriors and titans. And as far as team sports go, you don't get much more physical. Every game is a battlefield. I talked to Wade on a virtual call, but when you meet an NRL player in person, their size can be confronting. Wade isn't unusually big for the game, but you can see the sheer muscle mass he's built to withstand the repetitive blows of tackle upon tackle. But even the strongest bodies get worn down over time. So you're recovering from a surgery at the moment. Take us through that surgery and uh, have you got a list of surgeries like yeah, many athletes? I, 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 I do. I actually, in preparation, I wrote it down so you can go through it after if you like. But yeah, so No, I, take us through it. Take us through, through it. So I had shoulder surgery where I, I broke my collarbone through my AC so they need to open me up and repair repair that. I had Then I had a stress fracture in my navicular, in, um, in my foot. And navicular is a... Not a great bone you want to hear as an athlete because um, not a lot of blood flow goes to that area. So I've had a plate put into my cheekbone where I've broken my cheekbone in the game. I've had my fingers actually fixed. It used to go out sideways and then they put a pin through it. At this point, Wade lifts his pinky finger and it looks like it's been slammed in a car door. Oh, that is awful. Oh. Probably when I finish, I'll have the option to have the two bones fused. I have to take the knuckle out and I can fuse it, or I can leave it as is. I've ruptured my ACL, so I've had a full knee reconstruction. Um, and at the moment, I've just had a synesmosis, a ruptured synesmosis, so they put a tight rope through my ankle, uh, which is a week ago today. So that's my surgery history, so seven or eight surgeries there. Do you see many players around you who reach a point where even if they wanted to go on, even if mentally they still love the game and – you know, it's providing for their family, but their their physical body, that machine, is just broken and can't do it. You know, over, over my course of my career, I've, I've played against a lot of really hard competitors and, and great players, and unfortunately, um, injuries have just taken their toll, and their body just won't go the way it used to, and it just can't perform at the level that it needs to to compete in the NRO, and it is very sad. And, you know, a lot of the time, it's about the training, putting the work in away from the games to actually get your get yourself to a level where you can go out there and play, you know, and play consistently over the season. That's the biggest factor. It's, it goes all year long and you've got to be able to pick yourself up and dust yourself off again. And um, a lot of guys are limited, you know, knee cartilage missing, ankle cartilage missing, you know, shoulders, elbows, where the actual functionality over time and the, um, you know, the chronic injury over time just becomes too much. They can't complete their, you know, the training to get to the level that they need to be at. But you see some of the guys who played, you know, in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s, surgeries that weren't as effective as today or even, you know, no surgeries. They just got on with it and and their bodies, are, um, you can see it hurts and walk up and down stairs and it's just, yeah, it's the toll that the game takes on you. We're very lucky, right? We get to live our dream and we're, you know, we're, we're compensated for that in a sense, but... There is a price to pay, you know, yeah. and, and the price to pay is, is your body, is the way you live your life. And, you know, you're a long time retired. If you play until you're 32, 33, 34, 35, you're, you're really lucky in probably any in most sports. Because it's just not the game that is hard on your body. Like, you have to train the way you play. There's collisions and injuries and impact at training as well. 
most players would probably get their you know, soft tissue injuries at training just because the level you need to train at needs to be able to replicate the game. You need to prepare yourself for what the intensity of the game is. You're probably never going to reach that ultimate level of competition and intensity that a game brings about, but you need to try and get your training to match that as close as you can. And if you ask a lot of athletes, the game is actually, you know, you could play forever if you could just not have to train so hard to get prepared for that. Like game day is the fun part. You get to go out there and try and win and, you know, the fans are there, your family's in the crowd. It's just, it, it takes a toll and you're pre- preparing for that. You know, you make a really good point. It's something that you have to deliberately learn and deliberately put focus on. You don't just, you know, get born into this body that can, you know, withstand this pressure and perform at the level that you're asking it to perform. Can you take us through what does it, you know, involve to get your body ready for such a high-impact sport? The recovery process never stops. It's always trying to fix what you've taken out of your body, trying to replace what you've taken out because you need to repeat and repeat and repeat and that's how, you know, it goes game after game, year after year. That rest, recover, train hard, you know, break the body a bit and then recover and then train harder to get you in a state where your body and your and your mind are, are, um, are able to, you know, last the marathon that is in our all season. And when you say it's constant, I'm presuming it's not just something that you walk into the club and turn it on and turn it off when you walk out of the club, that it's all consuming in terms of all day, every day, the sleep you get, what you're doing on your weekends, on your downtime, how you're looking after your body. See, I find during the season much easier to handle because everything's geared towards the game. So it's easy to work backwards from the game. You know, you thought process around training all week, your food, your water intake, um, you know, you're always 24, 48 hours thinking ahead on what's coming. All right, so if it's Wednesday night, so I've got a game on Friday night. So what I'm eating Wednesday night is gearing me up for Thursday's training. And then what I'm putting in my body for Thursday is gearing me up for the, for the game Friday. And then you sort of have that, I suppose for me, the 20 minute, 30 minute period after a game where you're in the sheds and you're sort of relaxed and the game's finished you can finally take a minute where you're not worried about the next the next week but it doesn't take long you know the next day you're in for recovery and you're in for the review of the game before and like I said you start that cycle again you're geared up about recovering from the last game getting ready to train so you can prepare for the next game Talking to Wade, it feels like his list of injuries is a rite of passage. He says putting up with pain and playing hurt is different to playing injured. It's just something that everyone gets on with. In high-impact sports like NRL and AFL, sustaining injuries and managing pain is simply a reality. In non-contact sports like swimming, it's easy to think that injuries play a far lesser role but injury and pain are part of all elite sports. I have been injured on and off pretty much throughout my entire career. Uh, I first sustained a hip injury when I was 12 years old. So I used to be a breaststroker and uh, I tore the cartilage in, in my hip when I was 12. And so then I couldn't do breaststroke kick anymore. So then that's how I became a freestyler. Um, so my, my career was actually shaped by injury. 
And then on and off through, throughout my career, I have been plagued by injury. Probably the, the, the one that's been the most long lasting and most impactful is a chronic neck injury. And that was sustained uh, through an initial whiplash trauma that, that happened when I was um, 14 and had kind of got progressively worse to the point where before the 2016 uh, Rio Olympics, I was in you know six out of 10 pain all day, every day. It would get worse when I was in the pool. I had headaches all the time. I was waking up at night because it was sore and uncomfortable. I think I had sort of four cortisone in- injections into it in the lead into the games just to get me there. And then after after the games were were finished and i was at a little bit of a crossroads in my life and trying to decide do i want to continue to swim on or or do i think i'm done uh, a really key factor was the amount of pain that i was in when i was training and it takes i mean there's obviously the the physical toll but there's a real mental toll as well to be in that level of pain all the time particularly for me it was in my head and neck area and so we went in and uh, we, we tried a whole heap of different things. We, we went in and um, did what we call what they burnt off some of the nerves to the facet joint and that didn't work. And I just said, guys, like if we don't, if we don't find a way to manage this, I'm done. Like I can't keep doing this. And I, I managed to work with an incredible physio and we found some some world leading experts um, working at the University of Queensland and turns out that neck strength is really important. So I have the most ridiculous looking neck exercises to do. Tell me about your relationship with your body as you were growing in swimming mm-hmm. and your body's changing, you know, and you're changing. At what point did you go from this changing young girl into this is my machine and it's my greatest tool. It's really interesting because athletes have a really close relationship with their body. And it's quite strange how in tune we are to everything. It's almost like you're just constantly scanning it in case something is going wrong. There's there's a, a bit of a mental toll that, that goes along with that. A- am I eating enough? Am I feeling like I'm running out of energy? If you're running out of energy, your body starts metabolizing the muscles and you don't want that. So you're constantly checking in. And I think that that's okay if it's from a performance mindset, but when that begins to bleed into other areas of your life and when it starts when you're really young, that's really hard. And I think that I was really lucky when I was younger that I had a coach who uh, wasn't super intense and super focused. You can have a a real uh, emphasis on managing and charting everything to do with your body so you can you can plot the changes on a graph and you can do things they, they call them DEXA scans where you can go in and you can get scanned to see what your uh, muscle mass is compared to your fat percentage and, and and all of these things and I think he recognized quite early on that I'm quite an obsessive person so that there was there was never like lots of weighing in lots of skin folds which is a really challenging time particularly for women when when we're going through puberty because our bodies change a lot and unlike men or boys where they lean down and bulk up we fill out and we go from having these prepubescent 
almost androgynous figures to transitioning into a figure which is largely outside of your control. Mm. I'm lucky that boobs were never in my genes. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, we might not be sitting here having this conversation. (laughs) So... Uh, being really, really mindful of that throughout your, your teenage transition years is something that takes a lot of emotional intelligence from a coach. And I was really, really lucky in that my coach had that. Uh, I think that I, I witnessed things that, that weren't or, or coaches who weren't as emotionally intelligent. And when, when I had an experience on the senior team, I, I noticed that there was maybe, uh, a focus on appearance from an aesthetic point of view is in skinny swimmers make better swimmers as opposed to a performance point of view. Like what state do you need to be in to perform at your best? We had a fat club at the IAS. Yeah. Yeah. It was like you had your skin folds done and, and well, you're in the fat club. Yeah. And the competition between who's in the fat club, not in the fat club, who's getting out of the fat club. Yeah. And it was called the fat club. Yeah. I think that it is beginning to change. You know, when when I was going through this, it's like, you know, 15 years ago now. And I think that we are beginning to be a lot more mindful about the impacts that uh, discussions around body image can have on, on young people in general uh, because – while I'm talking about it from a female point of view, this goes on for men and women. Um, the boys and the girls are weighed in and have uh, skin folds and, and, and things like that. It's just um, for guys, it's, it's a lot easier to be very, very lean, right? Mm. And, and I think that it can so easily get turned into a competition, right? Who can have the lowest skin folds? And you're already amongst competitive people. like. It doesn't even have to necessarily come from the coach, um, but we'll turn it into a competition. After the break, we'll find out how, as a young boy, Wade came to the decision to put his body on the line for the sport he loved. At some point in those you know, formative years, 11s, 12s, 13s, you really start to work out whether rugby league is the game for you because um, you need to enjoy the physical side of it. You need to um, you need to not be worried about going out there and, and get, you know, being physical because that's the game. So, Was that always in you, that willingness to put your body on the line and, you know, enjoy the physical side of the sport? It's funny that you, you ask that and, and say that, saying your body on the line because so I grew up, um, with three sisters, mum and dad, and my nan was at home. Three sisters um, and and me. So it was a you know we were surrounded by the women. The women held all the power in the house, but it was it was me and dad. And footy was you know dad loved loved me playing footy and loved to watch me play footy. But then around those ages, you change your mind. You like things one week, you don't like things the other. I remember having a conversation with him when I was maybe you know twelve or thirteen about the game and he, he said if because it, it did it was getting physical he said mate if you don't want to play you don't have to play if you if, if it's enough for you you don't have to play anymore like we, we don't worry you just need to be happy and enjoy what you're doing and I said no no I, I do want to play 
And he goes, okay, well, if you want to play, you need to be prepared to go out there and put your body on the line and play hard, play fair, but play hard because that's that's the nature of the game. Yeah, it is. So you obviously decided that that's what you were going to do. So when did you decide that this body, you know, we talk about our body as a machine, when did you decide to really fuel it, get it big, you know, do the right things by it? It came quite early to me. I was, I was fortunate enough to be involved with some guys who um, who played in the NRL as a kid. So I was lucky to be surrounded by some great coaches that you know, they teach you, you know, about fueling your body and, you know, being introduced to weights and, you know, that sort of professional training standard. And it starts quite young. And then I suppose in the pursuit of a dream, you know, you're very disciplined and, you do what you're told and you follow the instructions of the trainers and the coaches. And, um, you know, certainly when I was, I was younger, I was a sponge with, with that because I, I definitely knew the path I wanted to take. And, and like I said, being around guys who'd taken that path before me certainly gave a sense that it was, it was achievable if you did the right thing and put the work in. So to get the site, you know, you're big. Most rugby league players are big. What do you need to eat to keep that size, to fuel that body? I have the body type where it's it's actually hard for me to gain weight. Like I need to work in the gym to gain weight, and when I say gain weight, I mean I mean gain good muscle weight. If I was to in the off season, you know, to go on holidays, I would obviously lose a lot of muscle. My I'd turn softer around the chest and the arm because I haven't been working out in the gym, and you know all that good muscle would turn to not so great body shape, and um. To get back in the gym, you know, I'm the, I'm the type of person that needs to eat good food and really work hard in the gym to to make my body shape gain gain the good weight that you necessarily uh, mean. Where other guys are, are built different, they they find it really easy to put on weight and it's harder to lose. I I feel like I'm a lucky one really because I I just need to eat eat really good food. You know, your high proteins and low carbs while I'm trying to um, build my muscles to just get in the gym and just put the work in. That's where I get the benefit. It's not about um, diet or it's obviously a good diet, but it's not about um, necessarily taking things away. It's about just working hard at training. You've mentioned the word recovery a few times. You know, how important is recovery in keeping your body in a state where it can actually take this physical load and physical hammering week after week after week? It's a lot of aspects, but you know, food is certainly a massive part of recovery. Um, hydration is a massive part of recovery. Sleep is a massive part of recovery. Um, you know, you can you can swim and, and massage, and and the whatnot's like the icing on the cake. But without those three aspects, your your body either can't keep up, it can't maintain the training, and it can't it certainly can't maintain the level of performance. Without enough sleep, again, your body and your mind can't handle the duress of consistently training at a high level and you know the pressures that come with the game but it's just a constant constant um battle just trying to get that perfectly right just to squeeze the most out of your performance it's so interesting that recovery is now forming such a big part because it's ironically an area of training that i'm really resistant to my my coach was kind of and has always been on on the forefront of this. This was a uh, a concept that he adopted right when I was really young, and we 
have done a lot of recovery. We work intensely hard and then we allow ourselves to recover so that we can reach those levels of intensity again. And this means that that we typically do less kilometers than, than, than a lot of other people. And at the beginning, I was really, really proud of, of this, but then we, we get stuck in the cycle of looking at other people. And there was this, this real sense of like, more is more. And if you're not doing more then like, there's something wrong with you and you could be so much better if you just did more. And so I kind of, for a while, got, got really stressed about the fact that we were recovering, even though my results were excellent, you know, I was best in the world. And so then I would push myself to, to do more or I'd do like extra things uh, and not sit in that recovery and, and then your performance suffers. And even now when I know that recovery is the best thing for me, I'll feel really uncomfortable resting and doing nothing, but it's a really, really big, important part of our training. And it's, it's a really important part of performance, whether or not you're in the pool, uh, allowing yourself to recover, allows yourself to replenish the energy so that you can go and do something really extraordinary. about food because you know that is your petrol mm-hmm. and you need a lot of it but it must just be such a big part of your um, performance it is and it, it's an area that I've identified that I need to be really really strict about when I'm in that competition mode because one of the physical signs of nerves when, when they play up and, and stress for me is loss of appetite uh, so my desire to eat just completely disappears and I don't like the taste of anything, food that, that would usually bring me joy and I would love and, you know, I'd happily wolf down. I'd just suddenly, the, the look of it, the smell of it, it just completely turns my stomach. So I have to be really, I, I take really high calorie uh, supplements during during the games. Like, and so I have to consciously and relentlessly fuel myself. Um, and, and it's something that's really, really deliberate. When I'm outside of competition, uh, I just have to be really careful that I eat every three hours because if I don't eat every three hours, my energy levels just come crashing down and I turn into this monster <laughs> because I get so hangry and I start to lose the ability to form coherent sentences and I get super cranky and I can't make decisions. Uh, so yeah, I, I always have snacks on hand so that I can like quickly fuel up. And it's funny because people say, oh, you know, you would have to really watch what you eat. But when you're doing that amount of exercise, mm. you can consume a lot of calories, right? It's now that I'm on a break that I'm actually having to really be a lot more mindful about what I'm putting in my body because I can see the changes it makes really quickly. Yeah, welcome to our world. I know. Like, <laughs> I, I can't have ice cream for, for dessert. <laughs> have you, now that you are on, on a break, do you notice that perhaps you have a different relationship with food to people who haven't been elite swimmers? I have a different relationship with food and I have a different relationship with my body. I like it to work really well. 
and I like it to be performing at its best, even if I, that's for no other reason than it just makes me feel good. And so I'm less likely to put really bad things in it. And, you know, while I definitely enjoy a couple of nights out and, and having a, a really good time, it is not something that I enjoy on a regular basis. I don't drink a lot of alcohol because I notice immediately that it affects my sleep, even if it's only like one or two glasses. Like throughout the week, I just I just don't have it. So it's like you can't turn off that tuning system that you've developed all over these years. It's constantly checking in, yep. even though now you're not swimming. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I constantly want it to be in its like optimal state, right? Because that's where I'm used to getting it. Did you have that mindset, um, you know, during training periods or during competition periods of the reward, I work hard and I reward, or it was just like I've got to measure everything? If I allowed myself like a day where I, I ate badly, then I would be very, very, very good for the next couple of days. To be honest, I probably, and now that I'm on the outside and I'm not doing the amount of exercise, I just, I wish that I'd just eaten a bit more crap. <laughs> I honestly do. Like, yes. I just wish that I'd loaded up on the calories because I could have a burger for goodness sake. Like, <laughs> But do you get bogged down because, well, I'm doing X amount of kilometers a week. They are, and they are, like every athlete is doing a very similar training load. You have to find your edge somewhere, don't you, when you're an Olympic athlete? Well, any athlete, but particularly mm. those Olympic athletes, are you are you doing are you pedantic because you're looking for that edge? I reckon I was pedantic because it made me feel superior to other people. Mm. It was more like I want to feel like I am doing more than you. So it's like this burger gives me the same calories as, you know, a ton of blueberries and yogurt. Yeah. But if I have not had the burger, I can stand up behind the blocks and look at my opposition and think, I've got you. It's not even looking at the opposition to say, I've got you. It's just look how much self-control I have. You ate that burger. Shame on you. I ate the blueberries. <laughs> Bully for me. <laughs> And have you ever said that out loud? Are you now thinking, what was I thinking? I go in and out of uh, phases of self-reflection and understanding of myself and then I willfully blind myself to all of it so I can feel superior again because everyone likes that feeling. <laughs> Coming up, are the highs of elite sport worth the physical cost? Talking to Wade and Kate, I realise their ability to withstand the physical demands of their sports seems to be closely aligned to their sense of identity as athletes and humans. For Kate, her identity is connected to her incredible drive to be the fastest swimmer on the planet. Alongside that drive, there's an intimate connection to the machine that has made her a champion. execution of that perfect race does it make every chart blueberry good sleep you know um extra recovery session does it make it worth it don't get me wrong it the the win it just it's it's one of those moments that i can sit back and lean into and take nourishment from but to be honest 
the, the parts of the process I love as well. And and do, does it does it make it worth it? Um, it definitely helps, but I never resented having the blueberries instead of having the burger. <laughs> For Wade, his identity is based on the toughness and resilience required to survive over a decade in the brutal physical reality of the NRL. It's a long year. There's 26 rounds in the continual grind of you know, the game, the rugby league game, the collisions, the bumps and bruises, the training. It does wear your body down. And um, you know, there is, you know, as much as we love we love the game as, as, as juniors and you know, obviously we you know we're very lucky and privileged. We the physical toll on your body. Uh, there's no way you leave the game, um, you know, the same way you, you entered the game for sure. There's, you know, a very wise man once told me there's a tax to pay for playing the game. Um, and upon leaving the game, you know, certainly your body's going to have the effects and the tolls on you for the rest of your life. In this episode, we discovered how recovery really became a competitive advantage. In the next episode, we'll see what happens when the push to recover faster and better blows up. We'll take you inside the blackest day in Australian sport. We hear the untold story of the peptides Essendon scandal, as told by a player, Nathan Lovett-Murray. Richard Eccles, a bureaucrat who was inside the government's decision-making headquarters, and the sports journal who literally wrote the book on it, Mick Warner. Inside the Blackest Day, next on The Long Haul. The Long Haul is a Headline Productions and Ranieri & Co podcast. Our host is Emma Murray. This episode was produced by Simon Portis and me, Liz Keane. Editing was by Simon Portis. Theme music was by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to Nick Randall, Robbie Ranieri, Kate Campbell, Wade Graham and Joey Ratcliffe from the Rugby League Players Association.